Hi, this is Dr. Carl Goldcamp. If you're interested in learning about the ketogenic diet like I was to save my own life, then this is probably the podcast for you. Eight years ago, I knew nothing about it. Six years ago, it saved my life. Three years ago, I started researching and talking with some of the authorities in the field and attending medical conferences about this to understand why and how keto so dramatically changed my and my wife's Judy's lives. The purpose of this podcast is to share our journey of discoveries with you in understanding how keto is so effective in improving so many different conditions from obesity, epilepsy, diabetes, infertility, MS, Alzheimer's, heart disease, to name a few. So take a step away from all the hype you've probably heard and roll up your sleeves with me and join me weekly to explore this living miracle that anyone can access. We'll talk science, we'll talk food. We'll explore its history and evolution to today, which is that the sheer wonder of the ketogenic way of eating has changed untold number of lives, unlike anything before it. And in case I forget to mention it, please join our Facebook group, Keto Naturopath. Hi, this is Dr. Goldcamp, and welcome back to another episode of the Keto Naturopath. We're going to talk about sarcopenia, and what that means, who has it, who really has it, and how to take care of it. So sarcopenia is a term that actually was coined in uh, 1988 at a hospital in New Mexico, should you want to know. And and basically, it was about age-related muscle mass loss that was measured, recognized, defined by DEXA, a DEXA scan which is not uh, a perfect way to do this, but this is 30 years ago, about 30 years, 30 plus years ago. So it's agreed that there is a muscle mass decline with age. And that's sort of the reality. It's kind of grown into a whole society. There's a society of sarcopenia now in terms of medical circles, and they include that with other wasting diseases. My point here is not to go into that sort of medical a breakdown of categories and who's studying what, but to say that it is a real thing, but it's not necessarily only age associated. And it is something that really comes right down to muscle mass. You know, for those who are not developing their muscle mass, have not developed their muscle mass for whatever reason, they're not active in sports, they sat around a lot, it will come back to bite them in the butt, as they say. However, it can start as early as mid-20s. So when you look at some of the basic literature, if you go online and you Google things, you'll see the initial um, references or definitions, certainly medical definitions of age-related muscle mass after age 50. Well, you know, you can put in parenthetically a lot of ages. I would put in parenthetically really age 25 because there's a whole generation that has come along since that definition in 88 was created that is way under exercised and that's culturally induced. It's, it's uh, exercise at gym is gym class is no longer at most schools, maybe all schools. I can't certainly speak to that. Um, yeah, there are sports teams and so on and so forth, but there's no obligatory gym class anymore. Wow. That's something. And that sort of sets the thinking. The gym class, I think, was more to set up 
uh, this is one of the responsibilities of you growing older is that you need to go out and exercise and with and showing you healthy forms of exercise, et cetera, et cetera. And your gym teacher morphed into your coach who morphed into your surrogate parents, depending on how much you got into that particular athleticism. But what I want to address is that, so what are really the causes that we know? So atrophy is easy one to point to um, lack of usage. You know, so if you're not using it, it will atrophy. But the cascade of other developments because of that are a lot bigger than you would think. It's not that you're not strong enough. It's not that you get winded walking uphill at age 30, 35, 40, 50, 60, 70. It's not just a cardiovascular aspect. It is a neurological aspect, and it goes on to other things. In fact, sarcopenia, as we've just discussed, is associated as the number one associated disorder with all-cause mortality. So it doesn't matter if you die from drug addiction, a car accident, uh, multiple sclerosis, cancer, heart attack, or stroke, and on and on it goes. It's the number one. So it's not just that you fell and couldn't get up, as the advertisement would go. It's because that of all the other associated, it impairs your immune system and impairs so on and so forth. Did you know that two-thirds of your blood in your body, obviously, depends on your venous system, your veins. Your veins have no muscles in them. So your veins are, that's why women get varicose veins when they're pregnant. It's where their blood pools. But so for that that water, for that blood to return to your heart depends strictly on your musculature. So as as you walk, are your muscles big enough to contract and therefore push the blood up? against gravity. That is the number one reason that when you develop muscle mass, your heart feels stronger. It's not because your heart is stronger as an independent muscle. You know, that has changed maybe a little bit, but it's the fact that the rest of your body has developed muscle mass to aid in two thirds of all the blood in your body to come back to the heart to then be over to the lung and then be oxygenated, et cetera, et cetera. So that's how important muscles are. So strictly on a cardiovascular level, it's a big deal. Well, let's go into some of the reasons. First, you know, so sarcopenia comes as a combination of many factors like obviously muscle disuse, neuron atrophy. That's really a consequence. Central nervous system inefficiency. That's a consequence. Declining anabolic hormones. Those are hormones that build muscles. That's a consequence, in my view. That's arguably, I'll I'll give that a neutral, but I would call that a consequence. Low protein intake, absolutely. Antibiotic, Antibiotic resistance, it's pretty much what I've said before. It's just more difficult to make muscle to get to produce that as you get older. And I say that parenthetically because I think you can, and there's many people who have do not have that situation. So if you don't do anything and you sit on the couch and there's other, or you stay in your office and you don't do physical activity, and we'll get into physical activity later, is that you will atrophy and you will slide into sarcopenia. And it's not because you weren't a smart woman or man, it's that your body was an exercise. So you have a responsibility there and it's going to happen with or without you. 
If you don't do anything about it, you are going there. There's not an exception. There's not, I mean, a pharmaceutical company is all over this trying to give you something that will keep your muscles in place. So let me go on. Micronutrient deficiencies. Absolutely. Genetic predisposition. Well, that's still pretty new. That speaks, um, you know, vitamin D you can talk about, vitamin D receptor, and a few other things. Those receptors of those particular genes are really a consequence of lifestyle in many ways that you can easily get around that. Mitochondrial inefficiency, of course, of course. That speaks to obesity, diabetes, um, basically elevated, chronic elevated blood sugar, and lack of exercise. You haven't pushed them. High-carb diet will get you there. Decreasing muscle quality. Well, that goes along with atrophy, don't you think? And chronic inflammation. So the inflammation is a big category. Inflammation from what? Well, any other particular disorder. Um, really, you could summarize quickly, where does inflammation come from? Obesity, insulin resistance, inflammatory uh, cytokines, big word, huh? You remember from COVID, we heard about the cytokine storm, mitochondrial dysfunction that pretty much goes along with obesity, insulin resistance, and reactive oxidative species. In other words, you're doing, well, it's that's kind of a, a an older, slightly dated way of looking at it. You're either A1, very low on glutathione, which could speak to a genetic predisposition, and or uh, your food source is highly processed. So all of that inflammation, all those factors lead to inflammation. Inflammation leads to sarcopenia, which is it becomes a blockage to you being able to build muscle mass. It's an obstruction. You can get around that. Get rid of the inflammation. Da 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 da. So on a more hormonal explanation, you have decrease in growth hormone being released from your brain pituitary, uh, decrease in thyroid. D3, a decrease in growth hormone, which is really hard to measure actually. So they measure IGF, uh, insulin-like growth factor, which I do measure. So for instance, I'm familiar with that. And uh, decreases adrenal glands, decreased testosterone. And um, they have a thing called altered myokine release, which is basically your muscles aren't being stimulated. So they're not going to release their local hormones to build themselves up. So that's a little more sophisticated way of looking at it, but it's really consequential. It's really because of the lack of exercise and not having enough protein. So I'm going to go much more into protein. I've gone into some protein before, and you know I'm a big fan of protein-sparing modified fast. But for older people, for instance, I'm working with a number of older people, older people being in their 60s and 70s and 80s, Hey, I'm about to be 65 in a couple of weeks. So I guess I'm going to be an older people too. But there are really two factors, uh, two glaring factors, and then a third less so. And we can break all that down. But the glaring factors are, yeah, atrophy. You're just not using your muscles. So, I mean, we, we can simplify it and say it all comes down to diet and exercise. Well, yeah, that's a kind of a useless statement, but it's a true statement, right? Well, the exercise is really interesting. If you can remember or have listened to back to past podcasts when we talked about high intensity training, not high intensity interval training, that's secondary. So the high intensity training, as we talked about, 
forces your adrenal glands. You're, you're going so slowly and you're going with weights that are really too much for you. You're going very slowly, whether it's your legs, your arms, whatever the exercise is, it's the slowness of it and that you can barely make any progress. It's that heavy and it's that slow. What happens? Well, that event, doing exercise in that way, high intensity training, weight resistant training, will trigger your your um, your cortisol, your emergency hormones in a way. You, you'll get the fight and flight. And so when you trigger the cortisol and all the subsequent cascade of other hormones, that changes things. So what I'm saying is HIT, and I will, well, it's on the YouTubes, we'll cover this, that when you wear a CGM, continual glucose monitor, and you're doing HIT, you can see that suddenly your blood sugar spikes. I don't mean up into the hundreds, but if you're somebody who is usually in the 80s, it's going to be maybe as high as 200. What happened there is that you finally reached such a point that you kicked in your adrenal glands and they kicked out cortisol, et cetera, et cetera. And that kicks in your growth hormone. And the neat thing about it, so you're going to see this spike. And you go, wow, what happened? That was all about HIT. Then go to the gym or go do some aerobic exercises. You're going to see you're not going to get that same spike. You might, you might see a, a slight elevation in your blood glucose level, depending how hard you push yourself. But high intensity training, it's all relative, right? High intensity training started with osteoporotic women. They went slow because they didn't want any bone fractures, and it evolved into a whole science of understanding muscle. It is all geared around, I hope you remember some of this if you listen to the other podcasts, what they call your type 2 muscle fibers, type 2B specifically, but type 2 muscle fibers. It's your strength ones. It's the ones that quickly expire. That's why they call your fast twitch as well fast to expire. So you are working initially and only with your type 2B, your strength, your strength, your emergency strength muscle fibers, and they then kick into creating other muscle fibers. So that's the peak of the of the event that you're really trying to induce. And if you don't get high enough, if you don't push yourself enough with the intensity so intensity could be a five-pound weight for some people and could be a 400-pound weight for another person. So it's not comparable in the sense. The intensity is comparable, but the weight isn't comparable from person to person. So you kick that response in, and for the next 48 hours, your growth hormone will be elevated. So that's one of the ways of increasing your growth hormone, which is one of the causative factors for should we be fancy and call it anabolic, anabolic resistance um, or simply low growth hormone? And, and so the people that I'm working with, I can see absolutely, they, if I was to check off the little boxes, low IGF, low testosterone, both in serum and in our hormone panels that we do. So, okay, checked off that box. It doesn't, it's not, Regular medicine would say, well, we're, we're just confirming, we're checking off the boxes to confirm that you have sarcopenia. Who cares at that point? How are you going to change it? What are you going to do to step in so this doesn't continue the same old, same old? Well, 
high intensity training is really appropriate. Absolutely, because it's down to the right kind of fiber of the exercise, slow and intense. Okay, more on that later. It's really a separate topic, but we've talked a number about it. And Neiman had uh, Dr. Vincent Benkikio on here to talk about it too. And he's really, in my view, the father of all this. And other people have come under him subsequent and now have done well with their books and so on and so forth. Nothing wrong with that. But he's the guy who started it in the 60s of a gym in which it was just slow exercise. Can you imagine that? Clearly, clearly, you don't see much of that in Gold's Gym or wherever you might want to go to work out. Okay, then. So we have that. What's the other thing? The other thing is clearly protein. Absolutely protein. You know, um, I've now been able to work with enough people. I see where they come in. I see, you know, I have them get into the chronometer in, in this case, and I just have them track their food. I don't tell them, you know, how am I going to set it up? Just, you know, do their height and weight and birth. That's about it. And I'll let them go. I want to see what their life is like in terms of what they consume. So assuming honesty here, uh, and there's a little bit of learning what foods to pick and to figure it out so you get a, a reliable daily documentation, you realize people are under eating protein by half. What does that, that mean? Well, I think the appropriate level of protein, which you know by now, is 2.2 grams of protein per kilogram of ideal body weight, or another way of saying that, which has been true for the last 70 years, is one gram of protein per pound of ideal body weight. And yes, that's a gram and it's a pound, two different units, it's just an easier way to say it. So if you do that, that's that's at least twice. So the uh, the RDA of protein is 0.8 grams per kilogram of body weight. So that's like almost nothing. That's way under. Where'd we get that number? Well, it's basically one of the numbers is that a lot of things are required. They should be required minimum, meaning if you're lower on that, you die. So when they have these RDAs required, it's usually less than that on a long-term basis is death. So it's the real minimal threshold for life for a couple months anyway. Then um, it should be much higher than that. So when you have adequate protein, and we've talked about this before, certainly I've done this a number of YouTubes, is that just having pro- the appropriate amount of protein that I've already told you about in the course of a day, right? So you look up your your ideal body weight and you figure that number out. If you have that on a daily basis, you will be stimulating muscle growth. It's kind of a freebie. MPS, muscle protein synthesis. And if you take that same amount that you calculated on yourself, ideal body weight, not actual body weight, and you break it up into four different eating times, so that's pretty easy, divide that by four. Have that at four different times. You can even have it five if you want to. Um, A breakfast, a late morning, an early afternoon, a dinner. Having spread it out over four different times of smaller allotments of protein, whole food sources of protein. So it's the meat, it's the chicken, it's the fish or whatever. It's not the protein powder that you will stimulate muscle growth. So as people get older, they do a couple things. They're less active. So the atrophy is all the subsequent events that come from just muscle atrophy or will obviously happen. But having chronically low under eating protein from maybe one's 20s or 30s 
Nobody really knew how much protein they should eat. So if you did nothing else but had protein first in your mind for the day, you know what, let's say for me, it's 160 grams of protein. I know what 160 grams of protein looks like in terms of chicken breast, in terms of New York strip, in terms of um, salmon, or in terms of how many cans of sardine, right? So I mean, at least I'll know these things. And then I can break that up and I know you know, how much they have in these particular snacks. So it's a no brainer. It's just, you reach in and you have that. Not a lot of preparation here. Uh, my wife, as a, as a, as a tangent a bit, she made these chicken patties from ground, uh, chicken, which we actually would use to feed our cat, one of our cats. And you can't just do this one food for feeding cats, by the way, they are obligate carnivores, carnivores. But, uh, for us, she made the patties and added various spices from our garden and, uh, it was remarkable. So now we have a plate full of these cooked um, chicken, ground chicken patties. And so I already know it's a patty and a half as a minimal amount of protein um, that I need. So I've reached that and that's my snack. I can easily, so when I look at these patties now, so I'm, that's really about eight patties of hand, you know, they're more like chicken burgers, I guess you will. So I have eight of those a day. It is not a lot of protein. Some people go, I can't eat that much protein. What they mean is when they looked up their number and they go, wow, look how much protein that is. And they think, well, in addition to potatoes, in addition to my ice cream, in addition to, gosh, that's a lot of protein. So I'd say, get that other crap out of your diet or at least have it secondarily and just say, I... In fact, let's do it this way. You can have all the crap you want, providing that you always have the amount of protein that you need, whole food sources of protein. If you can have that, you will change your life. I didn't ask you to go to the gym, but I did suggest HIT. You ought to try that. 15 minutes, twice a week. Can you afford to do that? Of course you can. You can even do it at home. So those are easy things to do. Third things are the micronutrient deficiencies. And so how would you know that? Well, one is, for most people, you need to get tested to find out where are you. And it could be lab tests of your omega panel, and you find out where are you on your omega-3s, and then you look at, we use uh, intracellular micronutrient levels. It's just good to know. It's the only, that's how I've been doing it for 20 years, you know, so I don't know where other people get their answers, but that's where I get my answers on defining micronutrient deficiencies, micronutrient being the opposite of macronutrients. Okay, then. So the in that category of mic- micronutrient deficiencies is omega-3s. Omega-3s actually sensitize your blood, uh, your blood fibers, your muscle fibers to being more catabolic, more, sorry, more anabolic. So they will be more able to build if you are have an appropriate amount of omega-3s. And we go into omega-3 and 6 ratios. And all that, most people are way under omega-3s and way over omega-6. It's kind of like a 95% of the population of the United States, if not 99. And so that's already stacked against them. So considering omega-3s are essential fatty acids to have, and they are part of whole food sources of protein, shazam, there they are, it's free for you, you eat whole food sources of protein, and you got it already. Obviously, it's more in fish, it's more in things like salmon and cold water fish, we call them fatty fish, but fish generally are not very fatty. 
uh, fatty, cold mammals like seals are fatty, whales are fatty, um, but fish are generally not fatty. We call salmon fatty fish, fat fish. That's <laughs> a good good source of uh, omega threes to have, by the way. So if you have that down, you structure it so it's you always get that protein. You structure it fifteen minutes twice a week to do HIT. You can do that, and you make sure you have enough omega threes. Even if you have to take it as a supplement, but you probably will not have to take it as a supplement if you have a whole food source of protein. So the question often comes up, well, what about protein powders? I hear they're pretty good. Yeah, I hear a lot about leucine and taurine and all these other things. Well, it's if you're hospitalized and you can't move your mouth and you can't eat real food, then yeah, I'm glad there are those backups of uh, protein drinks to have. But if you are doing your whole food source of protein and and the reason you would do it, so protein, when you're eating a whole food source of protein, it's a lot of vitamins and, and nutrients as well. It has some fatty, it has some fat in there, of course. I just went through that, which means it also has some uh, fat-soluble vitamins. Fat-soluble vitamins are even more so in organ meat like liver and egg yolks, which you should have throughout your week, not every day, but some, having a couple days a week that you do that. So this is kind of how you box it in. It's real straightforward. If you do these things, if you do, that's the minimal list to do. That's amazing. I would argue you should do more than 50 minutes twice a week. Go do another activity. Go um, maybe do a, in the very least, walking around the block. Uh, do tennis. Do whatever else is going to get your body moving, but make it move. If you are one that goes to aerobic classes, go to aerobic classes. That's not about building muscle mass. That would be more about maintaining it and keeping that growth hormone kicked up a little bit. Actually, it doesn't kick it up. It would just maintain it. You only get that through HIT, right? So you've really cured it pretty well by doing those things. You can go deep. You can really look at... Um, individual micronutrients you need. And I do believe that's important, but it's not something I get very easy to look at right now. Vitamin D is obviously another one. You know, why are, why as one gets older and they get more vitamin D deficient? Well, they're probably inside more. They don't get the sun and that's a big deal. Now, you, you do get vitamin D deficiencies in places like Florida and Arizona where people retire because it's so darn hot, hot outside. They stay inside longer than they would have stayed in the summer months up north, wherever they came from, Minnesota or New Hampshire or New England. So vitamin D is another factor generally. And, but to bring in another factor, as we get older of this sort of progression of sarcopenia, you know, what are the other sort of factors? They say, well, one is it's hard to eat more. You actually need more protein than you needed when you were younger. So that means you have to eat more protein um, well, just eating adequate protein would be the first step, but eating your appetite tends to wane as you get older. So you have to resist against that. Why does that happen? My guess is for all the same reasons that they've used for sarcopenia. Um, I don't think that those, I think they're more self-induced. If you have the exercise and so on and so forth, your appetite's going to be a lot higher. The other benefit from 
that that goes along with the working out part, the HIT, resistance training is referenced by other people, is a thing called brain-derived neurotropic factor. So it's otherwise known as BDNF, BDNF. So BDNF is something that is created uh, in a number of ways. Mostly it is created in the brain, but it's also created in actually your gut, in your muscles, in your liver, I think even in your kidneys. Uh, but mostly it's in your brain. But wherever it's produced, that production level goes up a lot when you work out. So for BDNF increase, it's a big deal. BDNF has a lot to do with long-term memory. It has a lot to do with uh, short-term memory, with memory here. Um, amygdala, should you want a hippocampus and amygdala? Uh, those are a big deal. So call it brain atrophy. So if you are working out, you're kicking off a hormone BDNF that preserves your brain actually creates, and you can get into. Um, let me tell you if I all right. BDNF uh, brain derived neurotrophic factor factors associated with age related decline and hippocampal volume, meaning the size of your brain that's responsible for memory. Hence, people get one more reason why people get dementia. Okay. Um, Physical exercise is closely related to cognitive function through a cascade of cellular and molecular processes that promote angiotensis, which is the growth of veins and arteries. So more BDNF means more growth of of veins and arteries to feed your muscles and take away the waste in the muscle. That's a big deal. You need that. Um, it's clear it has a role in the survival of neurons during hippocampal development. Um, that's, uh, well, that's actually always, uh, but mostly when we're younger. Uh, it reverses depression. Uh, decreased levels of BDNF may contribute to the atrophy of the hippocampus. And it has been observed in depressed patients. Kind of said the same thing twice in two different ways. And exercise can reverse, um, can increase levels of BDNF. So there you go. You have to figure out how to get exercise in there. So if you're looking around for the pill, and let me tell you, um, there's a lot of pharmaceutical companies looking for that, you know? And so basically they're looking for, hey, I'll give you testosterone, I'll give you estrogen, I'll give you growth hormone, I'll give you vitamin D, and I'll do nutritional inter uh, intervention for high caloric nutritional supplements, essential amino acids, and so on and so forth to support muscle fiber growth. All that's fine but it's still missed the big picture. So if you're only doing testosterone and estrogen and you're not working out, to some extent, you're missing the boat. You know, it's a little bit like, uh, it's a little bit like keeping your windows open in the South with your air conditioners on. What's the point? Um, vitamin D, you certainly need to monitor your vitamin D levels because they're, that's uh, a big deal. It's one interesting thing. I mentioned uh, stress. Stress is another I briefly mentioned stress is a factor for not only inflammation, but um, it's the stress, not so much from your work stress, it's the stress from other disorders, other um, immune disorders, whatever it is, your you know, COPD, MS, whatever it is, cancer. Um, but so what they've, what they're starting to give or have been given for a while, the idea that if you give a ACE inhibitor, angiotensin-converting enzyme. You should remember that reference from 
COVID times, that it will protect your muscles a little bit. So lowering the stress, if you will. So it just sort of speaks to, yeah, you could do that and it's not really all that helpful, but the, the concept is there and you could do it yourself. So you got the exercise. You really got to figure out how much protein you need and you got to put that into your diet on a daily basis. It's not like, well, maybe you get around to it. Oh, you had a good day. You had it on Sunday. It's got to be seven days a week. It's got to be like you, like you breathe. You don't catch up on your breathing on one day a week. Oh, I didn't breathe enough Monday through Friday, so I'm going to breathe more on Saturday. That's being inane for sure. Um, it's a daily responsibility and it's going to change you. It's the 50 minutes twice a week, it's going to change you. It's perspective. It's, you know, there's nothing like having a, a great physiology. Seriously. You're going to find, as you get to be my age, you know, people you went to high school with, as much as they're great buds now and you can have interesting conversations, they just don't recall what you recall. They've let themselves go out. I've had friends that are very much vegetarians. They were the politically correct group. You know, I, I, let me tell you, I grew up conscripted into our family garden. So I know about that, but it's not just that, you know, and they're, it's like they're losing their brains and it's hard to pull it back. Hopefully they're doing some exercise. That would be a big deal and they'd be able to compensate for their thing, but it, it has to be on the table. And other question that comes up, what about plant protein versus animal protein? Technically, you could do it. It's a lot harder and, you know, you've got to get it in there. And so you can't get it by whole food sources of plants alone. Seriously, you cannot. And the fact that plants have a lot of anti-nutrients, and I, I, my a medical education came from just the opposite, very pro-plant. But we didn't learn that much about oxalates and phytates, things that bind both iron and uh, there's another one, by the way, uh, and are um, inflammatory for your gut. So I come at this about my own health and coming forward of what I've been through and saying, this is the deal. This is about as simple as it gets. It is up to you. Put it on your calendar. You know, you don't have to put breathing on your calendar. Uh, remember Tuesday to breathe. Remember Thursday to breathe. No, but you better get it down so it's like breathing that you have the appropriate amount of protein per day, in the very least, ideally four times. Break it up over four, four different eating events or snacks or whatever you want to call it per day. That's a big deal. You did those two. You had your um, essential fatty acids, your omega-3s. You're on your way. And you now have your BDNF coming up as well. The degree that you did your exercise, ideally HIT. So I'm going to let you go now. And I hope that that was a shot in the arm. So it's not just for people over 50. It's quickly, it's clearly, um, I should probably end up with some uh, specific numbers here. Let's see, here we go. Uh, a muscle mass decrease at an annual rate of 1% to 2% after 50. Well, it starts a lot earlier than that. Um, testosterone declines beginning around age 35 to 40. Growth hormone declines by 14% per decade after 30. Um, in fact, growth hormone and IGF are both potent stimulators of cell proliferation, which is what you want naturally. So somebody will hear this and they'll go, I ain't going to get some growth hormone shots. No, don't do the shots. Induce your own growth hormone. For one, you'll pulse it. You're going to have this HIT 
and you're going to push it naturally and you'll create your own. The problem about taking growth hormone, uh, nobody takes IGF, growth hormone is it's a sustained level and that's a very unnatural way to have growth hormone. And it can be very pro-carcinogenic, very pro-cancer causing. So if you just do it in a they call it pulsatile, natural, or you raised it, and yeah, it was higher than it was for the for the next 48 hours, but it doesn't stay at that level. It then falls, but it stays higher than it was. And that's a big deal. And these are in people who had basically no testosterone, estrogen, and growth hormone. So it starts to wake all that up. So I hope you do this. I hope you apply it. And if it's not applying it to yourself specifically right now in this conversation, then think about your parents. Think about your grandparents. Just make a deal of one month. Hey, we're going to have some protein calculated for them. That's pretty straightforward. It's really height and weight. And if they're older, add a little bit. You know, there's not a technical little 5% or 10%, but at least make sure they have that. Then throw in another hamburger. <laughs> okay. But that's what they need. And it will make a difference. And it will change the disposition and how they look. Okay, till next time, take care, bye-bye. Hi, this is Dr. Goldkamp again for a brief reminder of something I completely forget to do at the end of every episode. You've heard me talk long enough and many different episodes, but what I would love you to do, and many of you have already done this, I just wanna reinforce this particular behavior, which is to send me your questions. Send me your questions and anything you have about keto. If there's something that I don't know, I will look it up. And if it's something that intrigues me, I will probably make an episode uh, a podcast about that particular topic. So what you need to do is to send me your questions at drgoldcamp at ketonaturopath.com. So that's D-R-G-O-L-D-K-A-M-P at K-E-T-O-N-A-T-U-R-O-P-A-T-H.com. Goldcamp at ketonaturopath.com. Feel free to join our Facebook group, which is also ketonaturopath.com. That's been growing lately. You also have to answer a questionnaire should you cho choose to join. And I don't ask for your email. I ask that you follow our terms. I try to avoid uh, advertising and uh, the obvious interruptions of a, just a good Facebook group. So hope to see you at one place or other. Please send me your questions and uh, look forward to talking to you and getting to know you. Take care.